time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, church. Oh, no one got the book? Whatever. Well, it's there still, if you want it. From last week, I'm talking about, if you weren't here, wondering. Um, I wonder if you've ever signed up for a new phone plan. Um, you know, it sounded really good, maybe at Telstra or Optus or whatever. Uh, but pretty soon you find out, huh. There's some hidden fees I didn't see when I signed up. Or, or maybe uh, it was a piece of equipment that you purchased, or perhaps some training. You thought you were paying a fixed price for it, only to find out, well, give it a month, give it, give it two. There were some hidden costs, some hidden fees. You ever experienced something like that? Yeah. Um, you know what's nice with Jesus is... Jesus never obscured the nature of discipleship in order to gain more followers. Jesus doesn't come with hidden costs. He doesn't obscure things in order to try to gain a crowd. He was very clear about the cost in following him. There's a cross before a crown. There is suffering before glory. There is sacrifice before the reward. We are called to win by losing. That's the heart of discipleship. So what I want us to see this morning is the necessity of Jesus' cross. The necessity of Jesus' cross. And second the necessity of our cross. The necessity of the cross and the necessity of your cross or our cross. Because the two go hand in hand, actually. You can't have one without the other. Some people say, well, you just accept Jesus as Savior and you get Lord later. Eh, wrong. You come to Jesus on his terms or you don't come to him at all. Jesus is Lord. 
and he does save you from sin, but you can't have one without the other. So the necessity of Jesus' cross, the necessity of your cross or our cross. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, we ask that by your Spirit, help us to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the truth of this passage for the saving benefit of our souls. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So over the past few weeks, I've flagged this massive conversation that took place between Jesus and his disciples. And if you recall, Jesus asks this very pointed question, and that is this. Who do you say that I am? You guys remember that? Who do you say that I am? And remember, Peter gives a twofold declaration, a twofold confession, as it were. First, he says, you are the Christ, meaning the long-awaited Messiah. Second, you are the son of the living God, which depicts Jesus' special and unique relationship with the Father as God incarnate. Now, that's, that's a monumental confession. And it's in the wake of that confession where Jesus begins to teach his disciples exactly what kind of Messiah he's going to be. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And it's in the wake of that confession, right on the heels of that confession, where Jesus now pulls the boys in and says, let me teach you what kind of Messiah I'm going to be in verse 21. So if you have your Bible, I'd invite you to look at with me in Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Okay, so earlier in Matthew's gospel, um, the Lord hinted at his death. We've heard it a few different times. Uh, he sort of made an allusion to it back in chapter 9. But now that the disciples have recognized who he really is as the Messiah, he's straight up. He's, he's, he's forthright about it. There's no guessing now. He even explains the necessity of his death in connection with who he is. If you look in your Bible there, can you see the word must? Must. He must go to Jerusalem. He must be killed. Which implies the absolute necessity for this to happen. It's non-negotiable. It can't be altered. It has to come to pass. Friends, we cannot understand Christianity if we don't understand the cross. Boys and girls, if we don't understand the importance of Jesus and why he died on the cross, we don't understand Christianity. None of us do. Christianity makes no sense apart from the cross because only at the cross the righteousness of God 
God could be upheld. You see, God is a moral being. You understand that? God is an absolutely perfect moral being. He is righteous. And as such, he has to punish sin. If he doesn't, if he turns a blind eye, it denies his very essence. You understand, if he's going to show his love towards sinners, if he's going to clear the guilty, it must be according to the standard of his righteousness. There's no other possible way. That's why Jesus' crucifixion was absolutely necessary. This was the plan with the Father in eternity past to save sinners this way. That the Son would carry out this plan by taking on human flesh, by suffering, by dying in the place of sinners. He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all. At the cross, the righteousness and wisdom and love of God are brought together in all their splendor. On the mount of crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above, and listen, and heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed the guilty world in love. We cannot understand Christianity if we don't understand the cross. Now, some of you might have heard that before. I hope in the last four years, now that's sort of becoming second nature to you. But this concept of the Messiah dying would have been shell shock for the disciples. Remember, we're on the other side of the cross. You see? When the disciples hear this, this is the most, huh, moment for them. I don't get it. I mean, to hear Jesus in one breath affirm that he's the Messiah and then turn around in the next breath and say, well... I'm actually going to suffer and die. That would be unthinkable. If you take a closer look at verse 21 with me, I'll show you how Jesus' prediction here runs counter to all their expectations of him as the Messiah. Look at verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. What do I mean that runs counter to their thinking? Well, notice first of all the place. The place. Where does Jesus say that he's going to suffer and be killed? Jerusalem. Every Jew would have expected this very spot to be the center where the Messiah establishes his kingdom. In Jerusalem. Where he'd drive out the Romans and nasty infidels. Where he'd set up houses of worship and where the nation would finally enter into a period of righteousness and justice and peace. Again, in their minds, all this was going to happen in Jerusalem. 
But Jesus turns this idea on its head by saying, actually, Jerusalem is going to kill me. That's the place where I'll suffer. And not only that, not only the place, but notice the people. Notice the people. Who's going to administer these sufferings? Who is it exactly? Well, it's the respected pastors of the day, <laughs> right? It's, it's the religious establishment. It's the solid Bible scholars. It's the people that we listen to on the podcast. I mean, whenever you come across the word Pharisee or religious leader, is that a fly or a bee? Huge fly. Get behind me. Yeah. It's a bee? All right. Nice. Can someone close that door? Maybe maybe that was let, let in the... Clark, I'm leaving on you, buddy. You got that thing? They don't hurt. <laughs> Come on, man. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. I'm tempted to launch into a whole thing there, but I, but I, will, I will reframe. So, um, now here's the deal. Whenever we come across the word, so like I said, they're like the respected, you know, pastors of the day, right? That was what I said before the bee or fly came in or whatever, snake or whatever it was, okay? So, if a snake came in here, I'd be like, okay, now I'm in Australia, right? This is insane. And then Clark would like jump on it, you know? So, um, or a croc or whatever. Um, that's what people, a lot of my friends think. They think that if, you know, there's just dangerous crocs in your, in your backyard all the time in Australia, you know? And then you guys jump on them or whatever, so. But, I, you know, no. Um, so, so whenever we come across this word Pharisee or religious leaders or chief priests, or, you know, what we, we think, what do we think? Bad guy, right? It's almost like you can hear the Star Wars Imperial March, you know? That's what we think, right? We think, we think those people and we think bad. But at the same time, you have to understand this, at this time, the disciples may not have actually had that view of the religious leaders because these were the same men who instructed them in the faith since they were children. If you had a question about God or the surrounding culture, You'd ask these guys. They were the trustworthy theologians of the day. But now Jesus says, it's precisely these guys, the respected pastors of the day, these guys are the ones who are going to kill me. Notice how he lists three different groups there. Can, can you see it in your Bible? The elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. Uh, these groups taken together make up the highest tribunal in Israel. And they are going to be the ones who murder Christ. But the disciples couldn't wrap their minds around this. They didn't include in their portrait of him that he would be a crucified Messiah. And that's why Peter says what he does in verse 22. Does that kind of make sense more now? Because again, when you think of the place, you think of Jerusalem, you think of the people, the good guys, again, how they would have viewed them probably, and then that's why when he talks about dying there by the hands of those people, Peter says, whoa, whoa, whoa. And Peter took him aside and began to what? Rebuke him. 
saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. What a scene. Peter just made this incredible confession of faith, and Jesus said, You're the rock. But within minutes, the rock begins to crumble into dust. Does any other disciple have such highs and lows? He's walking on water one moment, sinking the next. He goes from a great confession to a great contradiction. And the language Peter uses to correct or rebuke Jesus here is very strong. Uh, That's why some of your translations might read, God forbid. God forbid? No, no, no. God ordains. God directs. He does not forbid me from suffering, Peter. He requires it if I'm going to save you from your sin. Martin Luther, in his last sermon that he ever preached, said the poorest student in all the world is God. The poorest student in all the world is God because everybody wants to make God their pupil. Everybody wants to improve on God's actions. Everybody wants to improve on God's plan. Everybody wants a better God than the one that we have. Think about it. When God brings hardship into our life, what do we do? We take it upon ourselves to instruct him. Oh, no, 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 Lord. You can't be serious. Uh, this isn't from you. This can't, you can't be behind all of this. There's no way. You can't be serious. That's what Peter says. And it's at this point that Jesus turns to Peter. And this is one of those turns that every son, every daughter knows when something you shouldn't have said and your parent turns to you, gives you the look. Right? Jesus turns and says this in verse 23. Notice what he says. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Get behind me, devil. Get out of my way. Don't stand in front of me to resist me. You know, this was the same tactic, if you think about it, that Satan used in chapter 4. Remember what Satan tempted Jesus with in the wilderness? He offered Jesus the crown without the cross, the glory without the suffering. Peter understands some truth about Christ, but he's a long way to go. That's why he's so audacious here. Don Carson puts it this way. He says, Peter's strong will and warm heart linked to his ignorance produce a shocking bit of arrogance. He confesses that Jesus is the Messiah and then speaks in a way implying that he knows more of God's will than the Messiah himself. You you remember recently that Jesus gave Peter the name rock? But now he calls him a different type of rock, one that causes people to stumble. Peter's gone from a rock to what's called a stumbling block because he's not thinking God's thoughts. You know, when we're called to obey the Lord, and in so doing may put us in harm's way or expose us to suffering or slander, who are the people that will be strongest in their urging for us not to do it? Not to go there. 
It's typically the people that love us the most. That's what makes it so difficult at times to obedient to the call of God in your life. When Jesus announces his destiny in Jerusalem, it's his closest friends, his best supporters that want to stand in his way and tell him, this can't happen. Don't do it. But the Lord knows the necessity of the cross. And he connects his unique suffering and death with the life that he expects all his disciples to live. In fact, he is setting down a pattern of life for every one of his followers. So now we turn to the necessity of your cross. The necessity of your cross in verse 24. Verse 24, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If anyone would come after me, obviously Jesus is speaking directly to his disciples, but the term anyone widens it to include any individual who'd like to be a Christian. So you're here this morning, and you'd like to be one of his disciples. You want to follow Jesus? Well, what needs to happen? Look again at the things he lists there. He says, let him deny himself. That's the first one. Let's let's camp on that. Let him deny himself. That's where it all starts. Uh, The word deny means to disown or renounce. You have to come to the point where you deny that you have the capacity to save yourself. That is, you, on your own, cannot please God. You cannot redeem or save yourself. Deep down, you must see yourself in sin. Your heart must see itself judged, condemned, and worthy of hell. Knowing that in itself, it can do nothing to change. And so in desperation, it reaches out and seeks a rescuer outside itself. And that rescuer is none other other than Jesus Christ. You know, when Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount, how does he start? The Sermon on the Mount sits down, opens his mouth. The very first thing that comes out of his mouth, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus lays out the heart disposition for those who enter his kingdom. They need to be poor in spirit. That is to be spiritually bankrupt. It's as if you're so poor, you have nothing. You can't even earn a living. You have to beg for it. You are humbled by your wretchedness. And and as you sit, as it were, as a beggar, you're crying out for help. You see, until you realize how spiritually poor and bankrupt you are, you won't see the need for grace. You won't see the need for forgiveness. You need to deny yourself. But it doesn't end there. Look at the second element. Back to verse 24. Deny himself. Notice, take up his cross and follow me. See, denying self is one thing. Taking up the cross is another what does that mean? Take up, take up your cross. Simple. It is a willingness to endure persecution, rejection, reproach, shame, suffering, even martyrdom, even being killed for Jesus' sake. See, the disciples, when Jesus says, take up your cross, 
would have been very familiar with the idea of crucifixion. They'd seen firsthand different people forced to carry their crossbeam strapped to their backs through the streets, only then to be strung up and die. It was a humiliating and agonizing way to go. The cross was an instrument of death. To carry a cross meant a pathway to death. Now it's worth saying, death to self is not so much a prerequisite of discipleship, it's more a continuing characteristic of it. I think I'd be clear there. Because not everyone is going to literally die on the cross, though some of the disciples did. But dying to self is a characteristic of someone that has turned to Christ. Does that make sense? The point is, you come to Jesus on his, his terms. It's the end of you. You don't just raise your hand and pray a sinner's prayer. By the way, where in the Bible did Jesus ever, ever go up to people and say, hey, can you, can you, can you pray a sinner's prayer with me? Just bow your heads and say, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, okay, good, good. I believe that you died on the, okay, good, good. Congratulations, you're a Christian. Where's the sinner's prayer in the Bible? It's not there. What does Jesus say? Come and what? Follow me on my terms. And that means denying self. That means being willing to suffer and lose everything in order to gain me, Christ. That's why Jesus says in the next verse, look at verse 25. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what can a, shall a man give in return for his soul? Fascinating, isn't it? You see how it's, it's, it's actually opposite of what you think? Saving one's life now will result in losing it in the end. Does that make sense? You try to save your life now, at the end of the day, you lose it. You lose your life now, and the end of the day, you find it. You see how it's a bit backwards. Now, I'm really struck by this phrase, gain the whole world, and yet forfeits its soul. Can you see that there? Now, when we think of that, we think of billionaires. Right? We think of someone that, you know, super arrogant and wealthy. And, but I actually, I was, I was processing it. Uh, there's, there's some truth to that. Someone that's prideful and rich and arrogant and says, eh, whatever, I don't need Jesus. You know, look at all the stuff I've got. I've got a yacht, I've got this, I've got whatever, you know. Unless you're Russian and all that's gone. But, you know, you get the point, right? You've got all this stuff. But I actually don't think it just, I don't think it's limited to that. Because in your own mind, friends, sitting here right now, you can, quote, gain the world, so to speak, and still holding on to that, forfeit your soul. Because I grew up of them are very wealthy, but some of them would, would hear that and they'd say, oh, well, that's not me. I just need a house by the beach so I can ride what's called a, a beach toy. It's this thing called a surfboard. 
And so I'm content with very little insofar as I can play on my beach toy. So, okay. Do you see how what they've done? They've actually taken themselves out of this and they've said, well, I, this does is not me because I haven't gained the whole world. I mean, I know guys that have yachts and they've got this and that. But you see, they have gained the world. Does that make sense? It's, it's, it's their world. It's that all they want to do is live for themselves and live near the beach and, and surf. The same thing could be applied to, to any guy right now who's not in church right now. And he says, look, to gain the whole world, I got, I got what I need. I'm content. I've got my stubby and I've got my sport. Or I've got my community. I've got my friends. Those people, have, they're living the dream, air quotes, right? Whose dream? Theirs. They've gained the world. And guess what? In the end, they lose. Because the truth will out. It seems like they're living the dream. Right now, I'm telling you. If, if, like, why do you think there's 2% of people that attend church here? It's because in their minds, that is a loss. And they're not willing to come to church. They're not willing to investigate the things of God because that's wasting your life. Like, I always picture it this way. Picture in Australia because it's a very secular nation here. It's like a pie chart, right? And you take, take an, I always pick on Aussie blokes because they need it. But picture an Aussie bloke and his, his life is like a pie chart, right? I don't, I don't have like a cool thing. Dan would have something like that. He'd be like, when he would like move and make sounds and stuff, right? You just have to use your imagination with me, okay? So picture like a pie chart, okay? Here's his pie chart. Well, huge, a huge slab of that pie chart is going to be work, right? Because he has to work. And then the other part of that pie chart says mates. The other part of that pie chart says sport. The other part of that pie chart, whatever it might be. In, if you're tracking with me, that's his whole life though. You get it? You know, 40% of work or 60% of work. Hopefully it's more than 40% of work, but for, you know, however much percent of work, percent of fam, oh yeah, shoot, you got to sneak in family in there. Oh, yeah. Being facetious. You know, sneak in family in there. Here's his pie chart, right? That's his life. In his mind, there is no way to wedge in there, investigate the things of God, church. That's stupid. Like he would say something like, well, that's nice for you, but I, I don't have any room in this pie chart for the thing that says church, even if it's 5%, 10%. That's a waste of my time because I've gained the world. But in the end, he forfeits its soul. Tragic. And he thinks, or we can pick on girls too, or woman, she thinks that it's, do you see how deceiving it is? They think that they're living the dream. They think that because they've gained the whole world and in the end they die and go to hell. They see no need for the necessity of the cross and they're certainly not going to take up their cross and follow Christ. It's tragic. Absolutely tragic. It's like the Lord of the Rings. You know in the Lord of the Rings, at the, the very end, when, when Gollum, right, he, they're, they're almost going to destroy, take the ring and, you know, throw it into the fire. You know, and Frodo goes mental. No, the ring is mine, right? And then what does Gollum do? Ah, and bites his finger off, right? And, and then and he's, he's, like, he's like this, you know, doing his little victory dance, weird creep that he is, you know? And he falls, and then they wrestle, and he falls back into the fire pit, and it's amazing to me that scene in Lord of the Rings, in the movie at least, as he's falling down to his death, what does he do? He's not, he's not going like this. Oh! 
he doesn't care because he's got this and he just clenches his to his chest. Gains the whole world, you see? That's all, that's all he wanted was just this thing and yet dies in the end. That's a picture of your friends and coworkers and family members right now who don't know Christ. They've gained the world. That sin will drag them right down to the pit of hell. Whatever it is, be it a beach toy, be it a stubby, it doesn't matter, you see? It could be anything. This applies to anybody. That's why Jesus said, look, if you're going to come after me, you better count the cost. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. You see? It's the end. It's turning to Christ, turning from trusting in ourselves, throwing ourselves at the mercy of Jesus and Jesus alone to save us. And as we do that, he's the master. He's the boss. He's in charge. He calls the shots, not us. He is the Lord. That's what it means to have Christ as your master, your Lord. Not your homeboy, not your friend, not a gushy guy who makes you, no, your master, your king, your Lord. Jesus has it on those terms. He ain't not, nothing at all. And then we have this final verse here that's not confusing at all. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. The Son of Man is just a typical phrase that's picked up from this figure in, um, in Daniel 7. But, but, but here we go. The Son of Man is going to come and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, what on earth does that mean? Because, like, did you catch the time lapse of that? <laughs> right? So here's the eight views. No, I'm just kidding. Stick around until, I'm not, this, is not, this is not an escape. I realize this is the very end of the sermon, so stick around until Matthew 24. But see, if you, I do think there's, some people argue that there's a, when we get to 24, that is, which could be a while. But I, I wonder if there is a connection there when there's this idea of glory into the transfiguration, which, anyway, I'll let you, I'll let you tease that out. But I, I, I didn't keep, I, 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 I'd encourage you to do this rather than me just kind of throwing a, a little grenade and running away. Think on that, tease it out. Talk with it with your growth group. What's going on there? You know, isn't it tempting when you're just, sitting by yourself in devotions at this point to kind of skip over that bit and go, I'll tell you the truth. Some standing here today will not taste this until they see death. And I'm like, what? Oh, anyway, oh, the transfiguration. I love this passage. Tease this out there. What, what's going on here? What's happening here? So talk about that. Think about it. Write down a question mark. Go read chapter 24. See if you can make some connections. But I hope today you've seen the absolute necessity for the cross. That the only way someone can be saved is by trusting in Jesus alone as he died a real death in the place of sinners. And I also pray today that, as I said in the beginning, you don't bifurcate or separate this idea of, oh, well, that's good. I'll take that part, point number one, the necessity of the cross, but I can give or take point number two. Do you see how they go hand in hand? Our Lord, it's absolutely necessary for, it, for him, his cross, that we be saved. 
And the way in which we appropriate that, so to speak, is by faith, but taking up our cross. And Jesus makes it really clear. What area of your life, friend, is there, is there an area of your life in closing that you're doing the Gollum thing? Right? Is there a sin in your life that you're going like this? I'm not going to let go of, I'm not going to let go of, I'm not going to go of. I'd encourage you, don't deceive yourself. Turn to Christ. Turn from your sin. Trust in Christ alone. Let's pray. Lord, we look at this text and it is a massive challenge to our comfortable way of thinking, our life of leisure. Lord, we pray that this wouldn't just be something that, almost like parents that give empty threats, but Lord, we'd actually take this to heart. This is you, the living God. These are the words that are true and trustworthy that you've given to us in your word. So we pray that you'd grant us faith to turn to them and trust. For the saving of our souls, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So if you are here and you are a Christian, you've trusted in Jesus alone for the hope of forgiveness and eternal life, and by obedience to what the Lord tells us to do in the Great Commission, that you have been baptized, we'd encourage you to participate during this time as we celebrate his death in our place. And I said this before, listen, if you're here and you're not a Christian, why not? Like, why aren't you a Christian? I think it's been pretty clear today. I don't say that in a way that I'm annoyed. I'm saying, why haven't you turned to Christ? What's holding you back? So process that during this time as we hand out the elements. So go ahead and take all the bits and pieces, hold on to them, and we'll take it together as a church family.